Hey everyone, welcome back to the Meet Kevin Show. Today, Meet Kevin meets Kevin O'Leary, investor, entrepreneur, of course, Mr. Wonderful. I am super excited to ask a ton of questions about what the heck is going on in this crazy market and world. Please welcome Kevin O'Leary. Hey Kevin, how's it going? Great to be here, Kevin. I love this Kevin Squared thing, it's great. Love that. Absolutely. So, Kevin, I want to get right into it. We had CPI data this morning. It wasn't as bad as expected. What's your take on inflation? Is the Fed going to lose control or are they going to maintain control? What's your take? I think the Fed's been pretty clear. They are focused, pedal to the metal, on keeping rates at basically zero until they can get these last nine million people replaced in the economy, redeployed. And, and, and I think everybody's beginning to realize it's happening very quickly that the economy that we're trying to stimulate back doesn't resemble 2019 or 2020 anymore. There's been this incredible digitization that's occurred during the pandemic, where now the entire economy and, and purchase preferences as well with the individuals has changed. It's very much direct to consumer. All kinds of new business models have emerged. Retail has taken a back seat in terms of how products are sold to people now. All kinds of fundamental changes going on in business travel, what's happening in terms of expenditures at, in the S&P 500 companies right down to small, you know, mom-pa businesses, and we, and we don't yet know what it looks like until we get out of this pandemic. So as far as the Fed's concerned, they're focusing on all the people that lost their jobs, for example, in business travel and airlines, that's 10% of the employed people somehow involved in that chain in America. All the people that lost their jobs in movie theaters that were cineplexes that nobody wants to go back mm -hmm. to anymore. All the people that lost their jobs in restaurants and food services businesses have to be redeployed by the new digital economy, whatever that looks like. And that's why you're going to have a current focus on that for at least the rest of the year. And that's extremely constructive for stocks. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. I have never ever seen data like what I'm seeing now. In Q4 of this year, we may achieve past the 9% GDP growth. You haven't seen that since the 1950s. Golly. Yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible. Just the growth of the projections. I believe they're they're thinking uh, if we add together 2021 and 2022, we could be growing like we were growing in 05, which a lot of folks don't want to hear 05 because what came after that, uh, which begs the question, is it possible that if the Fed keeps uh, keeps the Fed funds rate so low for so long that we end up letting the inflation genie out of the bottle? I mean, I've heard you yourself say, hey, we, we shouldn't be spending all this money. Yeah, I think a lot of the expenditures wasted. Um, that's because it's such a blunt instrument. The $1.9 trillion package that already has been legislated, uh, I would say 50% of that will be wasted. The infrastructure package is more interested, interesting, but we don't yet know what that's going to look like. And it may have the detrimental uh, impact of raising corporate taxes again, which makes the U.S. uncompetitive. The idea that uh, Yellen can run around the world asking for a standard minimum corporate tax is a joke. That's never going to happen. The Asian markets, which are very, very tax efficient in terms of low taxes, are killing us in growth. They're just really getting competitive and they have no interest in raising corporate taxes, you know, to kill that golden goose. So we will, uh, again, if this tax proposal is put through, be the highest corporate tax jurisdiction in the world in terms of the G7. And you'll start to see all the inversions starting again, companies making moves to get out of the U.S. So I, I'm not sure they're going to be able to do that easily. So that's a big question mark. Regarding inflation, you have a bellwether every day. You simply watch the 10-year. The 10-year bond will not be competition for equities until it has a three-handle in front of it, which is a long time from now. What oh, wow. about 1.6? So you're going to stay the course on stocks because that stocks actually do well in inflationary times. They tend to actually have pricing power. 
And corporations do very, very well when inflation comes in the economy. It's runaway inflation you don't want. You don't want to turn America into Venezuela or Cuba or something like that. But I think we're a long way from that right now. Long way from runaway inflation. That's And that's a, a fear that a lot of folks have is that we might see that kind of hyperinflation that we're going to, that that essentially the country is debasing the dollar and, and that we can't trust the dollar anymore. And that's maybe why you see a run into cryptocurrencies. Is that not something that you believe that the dollar could could lose its value or, or potentially even collapse or lose its status as uh, the world's uh, you know reserve currency? Well, there's some speculation. You saw a lot of uh, pundits talking about this this week, that China was really trying to promote cryptocurrencies as a way to getting out of under the mat of the dollar. Because the truth is the Chinese economy is based on the U.S. dollar in the sense that everything outside of their economy settles in USD. Nobody wants to take the Chinese yuan and hold that long term. They have no idea what the policymakers are going to do with it. So if you want to do business out of Hong Kong or out of China, you ask to settle in U.S. dollars. And that's really what the Chinese are frustrated about. What they prefer to see is a cryptocurrency, perhaps one they bring on them on themselves, uh, which I would never take into custody because the Chinese could simply turn it off if they weren't happy with you or something you said about them, or Bitcoin. And that's why Bitcoin is at, at a new high today. Um, no government controls it, but it does have its own issues emerging now. So we've got a very interesting time going on here. We're basically, and I think the best way to put it, in an economic war with China. China doesn't play by the rules, doesn't give us access to their courts, does not give us access to the middle class. They use American courts to litigate their own IP domestically and sell tons of products into the largest economy on the earth currently, which is the US economy. And until that playing field is leveled, we're going to have tremendous tension with that regime. China this morning came out and said that they want to play nice with Biden in so many words. Uh, it sounds like you don't believe them. No, I don't. Um, I just look at the last 10 administrations and how crafty they are in making nice, sounding nice, and then keeping everything the same as before. The only uh, thing the Chinese understand and respect is the stick. That's what they understand. And wow. so you can look and back for the last five administrations and realize until the last one where they really put the pressure on them, nothing was changing. The idea that you can form a cohort of American and European economies to work together to bring the Chinese a bit to bay is not going to happen because in Europe, basically 25% of most of those economies is tied to China. So while they'll give lip service, they don't want to in any way taint their relationship with a quarter of their GDP. That's why it never worked. The only time now is to go hardcore against China and say, look, we understand we're in a competition. We understand the, le the, the, leving, you know, the, the, the playing field is not level. So sure. let's, let's level it. And the way to level it is to say, let's, let's make it level right now. What would that mean? Delist all the Chinese stocks. Do not give them access to our courts. We don't get access to their courts. Make it the same for both. Then build it back up. When the Chinese feel the pressure of that stick, they'll understand they have to somehow raise the bar. Now that sounds torturous and difficult, but it sure. has to be done. It has to be done. It makes no sense to me that an American manufacturer has to give up their IP and basically have it stolen. That hasn't changed. You've heard a lot about it from the last administration, but it's the same. The Chinese people are not at fault. It's the policy of the Chinese government that is causing these tensions. And it's really time to address it now. Now's the time because if they become bigger, which they will in the next 20 years, you won't have that leverage anymore. Remember, the stick is what they appreciate. The stick is what they want. The stick is what will work.
The stick is what they want. I mean, the stick is generally associated with sanctions. I, I, I don't believe that China wants sanctions, but it sounds like that's what you're advocating. No, I'm beyond sanctions. I want to take them right out of the financial system in North America. <laughs> they don't get oh. access to it. It's that so, simple. So Alibaba, Neo, Xpeng, D-list. Sure. You know, the economy, the economy is so large and there's yeah. so many other places to deploy capital in those markets. It'll find a way. Or if you insist, you can simply go buy those shares on the Hong Kong exchange sure. or whatever exchange it is, but it'll make it much harder for compliant institutions in the US to do business with them. And also, wow. you know, frankly, that stick will really put some pressure on them to solve the problem. My assumption is you have a few rough quarters when you do this, you implement it, yeah. but then we get to what we want, a really collateral discussion with them about leveling the playing field. America can compete, China can compete, just level the playing field and let the competition begin. But don't keep it in this unbalanced football field where it's so unfair for other economies that don't get access to the Chinese economy. If they want to play with the big boys, they've got to play with a level playing field. And if it takes a little pressure to get them there, that's okay. The stick works. Now, what do you think about uh, Tesla? Tesla's one of the first manufacturers in, in China, US manufacturers in China, many ownership uh, in, in their company uh, to China. Do you think that this maybe sets a precedent for maybe there is a nice way to play with China? Maybe we just got to do the Elon Musk way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the right direction to go into partnership, to actually have access to their middle class and sell cars to them. Why not? Elon Musk is a, is a maverick in terms of what he does. He doesn't play by the rules, obviously, but he's actually a good way, a good designer of how this relationship should work. If American yeah. companies, if Boeing wanted to go to China and build planes there, they shouldn't have to give yeah. up control of their IP to do that. And that would help the, that would help the Chinese economy. If you know, think about all the technology they can actually provide for that growing economy and in a partnership way. I don't know why they're not discussing that, but that's the kind of potential that we could have across all kinds of different technologies. And also when it comes to pandemics, you really have to ask yourself, why do so many of these originate in China? I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying mm -hmm. if we're more cooperative on biotechnology, we could stop them in their tracks and save billions of dollars, millions of lives and be cooperative sure. on that basis. Again, the stick is the way to go. Do you believe that the Biden administration will, will change anything over the next four to eight years? I think the Biden administration is uh, focusing on what they said in terms of their mandate to get every American vaccinated that wants the vaccine. And we're in the throes of that. We're probably in the sixth inning. They've done very well in their in execution of a bit of a setback today on the J&J &J vaccine, but that yeah. doesn't mean we can't keep going. We've still got two other alternatives. American ingenuity and technology brought these new medicines out of Moderna and Pfizer, and that's tremendous. But at the end of the day, that's the focus of the administration. When that's over with, then the infrastructure package comes and somewhere along the line, he's going to have to address China. Now, I'm glad to see he did not take off the tariffs that were put on and hard won from the last administration, like them or not like them. The policy was very, very good for the American economy to start pushing back on China. But I think he can use that and continue to lever it. But you know, at the end of the day, the Chinese are very, very good at playing one administration off against the other because their leadership is for life. That's not how the American economy works. You get these four to eight year cycles and they've learned how to play that ball. They'll immediately say, let's have a meeting, let's get together, let's talk about our future together as friends and nothing will happen. You gotta go to that meeting with a stick.
Wow. Wow. Uh, so I want to go back to something you mentioned early here was uh, this uh, digitization of our economy. There are a lot of folks uh, very excited about investing in recovery stocks, which obviously have done phenomenally since uh, the election, uh, the recovery of even the Macy's, the Nordstrom's uh, and, and uh, the airlines. What's your take? I mean, is this a sector that you stay away from? Is it a value trap like Kathy Wood says? What's your take? No, um, these are not uh, stay-at-home stocks anymore. These are work-from-anywhere stocks. And so what you're starting to see happen up and down the S&P 500 is that companies are realizing people that work in accounting, compliance, or logistics who used to work in cubicles at HQ do not want to return to those cubicles anymore. And that represents about 15% of the workforce. They're asking for more flexibility and lifestyle. Maybe they're raising elderly parents. Maybe they're raising children. They don't want to do the commute, but whatever reason it is, we now have proven technology that allows them to work efficiently and productively from their homes. And so you're going to start to see these stocks become the bellwethers of the new generation of digitization. They're the ones that have allowed a global you know, move to e-commerce. And it's not just domestically. Zoom, for example, CrowdStrike, DocuSign, Adobe, Microsoft licenses, Shopify. These are all the tools that are used to digitize America, whether you're Nike or whether you're a small business around the corner. And companies like Facebook allow for geolocked advertising. There's so much of this technology that was put to work over the last year that's proven to be very, very productive. And in a way, will change the cost structure of the American economy to the positive. I'll give you an example. You don't have to fly to Bentonville anymore and spend two days to meet the buyer at Walmart, the world's largest retailer. You can do it on a Zoom call, get 18 minutes, and the buyer themselves are 20 or 30% more productive. And you save thousands of dollars in business travel. Now, it's not good news for the airlines because even though they're coming back, it's all basically vacation tickets. So $248 was the average ticket last week, including the return travel. That means everybody's going to Disneyland in a big tube. That's a very crappy business. They won't make any money. And as a result of that, those airlines over the next two years, probably a couple of them have to go bankrupt and consolidate capacity because business travel wow. is permanently impaired by maybe 15, 20%. But there's nothing wrong with airlines going bankrupt. They're very good at it. They do it every 10 years and they reduce capacity. And that's what the Fed is worried about. All the people who displaced, they're highly trained employees. We've got to find a way to redeploy them. Maybe it's going to be cloud kitchens. Maybe it's going to be pick and pack storage. Maybe it's going to be all kinds of new digital reasons to exist in the new digitized America 2.0, but we've got to find them jobs. Wow, wow. So uh, of, of uh, airlines that could go bankrupt, any particular ones you look at? Are you looking at the most highly leveraged ones? Or uh, do you think a company like Spirit could be the one that wins because they don't cater so much to business and they cater more towards the Disneyland traveling? Well, all the balance sheets are upside down in a combination of loans from the government and debt they went and raised on their own in the open markets. The Fed kept the debt markets liquid. So the deterioration of even uh, one of the strongest companies in the airline industry, Boeing, that balance sheet has been decimated. There's billions and billions and billions of dollars of debt on it. Now, I'm not saying Boeing will suffer the slings and hours of the operators because they're one of the companies in the world that makes airlines, and we do need them. But the airline industry itself has is, is gone through a, a massive change. Really, it's just a bus now, a bus to move people around to their vacation destinations. The business travel component, while everybody's so op, you know, optimistic about it, I don't see it coming back. A lot of it will, but not 100%. And that 15, 20% was where all the profit was when you paid, you know, $5,000 for a trip to Europe on a business class or first class seat. Nobody needs to do that anymore. So you go there for a vacation 
and you do it for $999. The airline makes virtually no money doing that. They're just wow. filling up tubes. It's a miserable business, but that's okay. You know, you've got 11 sectors of the economy. You don't have to focus on the losers. You can focus on the winners. And, and the winners, sound like you had mentioned, sound like the Adobe's, the Facebook's, the Microsoft's, huh? Yeah, I think technology is a good bet and will be. It's got volatility, but people say to me, oh, it's over for the, you know, the Zoom stocks and the Shopify's. No, it isn't. It's in, they're in their second inning. It's hilarious. If you look at the volatility of, uh, of Amazon over the last 20 years, you would have never owned it. It's so volatile. Some years it goes down 38%, but in the long run, it's created a trillion dollars worth of value for shareholders. Same thing's going to happen to these, these economies and these stocks that are going to provide digitization. Another sector which I really believe in now is healthcare. I think we're going to domesticate all of drug manufacturing, hazmat materials, medical devices to Puerto Rico, to Canada, to Mexico, to North America, so that we're not beholden to the Chinese when it comes to a pandemic, because we don't know what COVID-20, 21, and 22 are or when they're going to come, but they will come. There's no question about it. We need to be ready for that and obviously use our technology to protect us in a way we hadn't thought of before. So that's another one. And the consumer, whenever you, tr you sprinkle 1.9 trillion free dollars out of a helicopter, just throw it down at people for free, the consumer spends it. So I think they're right. going to be very, very strong in the next year, year and a half. So I, I like those sectors over, let's say, energy or airlines or anything else, frankly. Got it. Now, Biden, you know, of localizing production, that's a big priority of Biden, for example, even with auto manufacturing, wants to use American unions to, to build vehicles in America. Uh, what's the possibility, though, that using American labor just ends up shooting prices sky high. And then, then people have the default to Chinese or Japanese made vehicles, for example. Yeah, that is a big problem. Biden is in a bit of a pressure squeeze on that one. You know, mm -hmm. it's great. Um, the, the only way to make the American economy uh, self-reliant and sustainable long-term is to make the economy competitive globally so that all people that want to invest in corporations from all countries and all jurisdictions come to America like they do to Vietnam, like they did to China, like they do to Asia and Singapore, because those economies are very productive, very low taxes, extremely high growth, and yeah. have very good domestic markets as well. So the problem he's got is, you know, the rhetoric from the left side of his party to tax the rich and take all the money away from people and de you know, disincentivize entrepreneurship in America is not a good model because that's not going to get people saying, gee, I can't wait to invest in America, the highest corporate tax rate in the world. That's just not sure. going to happen. And so I think that debate, even within his own party, is going to be very tough. Now, what happens, because I'm a bit of a policy wonk, midterm elections are a bit of a problem for Biden because every incumbent, every incumbent, regardless of party, loses seats in the, in the midterm. It just happens that way. So he's on this really delicate razor wire balance, given that he's sort of got, you know, the ability to do this if every one of his party members agrees. And that means he has to get it jammed through in less than 24 months. I don't think it's going to be that easy. I think it's going to be hard fought. I think he's going to lose seats. He probably knows it. So it's better to come in with a more moderate middle of the road strategy hmm. and leave the massive tax hikes um, for afterwards. Ah. It, you know, at some point after the economy is running at full throttle back to unemployment under 4%, like it was prior to the pandemic. And I think that's a ways off. So I, I think you've got a really interesting political scenario coming. But if all of a sudden he jams up corporate tax rate to global highs, the economy just sputters out. That's what will happen. Wow. Tell me about this. So, the, so you actually think 
despite us stimulating as much as we are, just that corporate tax increase could be enough to to sputter out the economy. Could you, could you define that a little bit? What, what are you saying? Sure. It's a very simple equation. You're pouring free money out of the sky from a helicopter into, <laughs> into anywhere you can stuff it, okay? But then you're raising taxes, so you're taking it back right away before it doesn't have a chance to have any effect whatsoever. You're asking people to pay more tax and corporations to pay more tax. What was the point of the free money then? I mean, that, that made no sense. You're basically letting it fall out of the helicopter and yeah. immediately the tax man grabs it just before it does anything. So that, that really makes, you can't suck and blow at the same time. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and that's really the bottom line. That's the problem he's got because corporations uh, don't have feelings. They don't have emotions. They can move right. overnight. People tend not to want to leave their families. So maybe the U.S. has to start considering what the Europeans did, a value-added tax that taxes usage but doesn't tax necessarily corporations. Frankly, in some ways, the Nordic model works better, or the Swiss model, where there's basically no corporate tax. They just tax people. And wow. so much competition for capital goes into those countries to set up businesses to service you know, Europe and Asia from countries with no corporate or low corporate taxes and the, the people pay the VIT tax. I think there'll be a lot of dialogue about this, but just raising corporate taxes is going to be very detrimental. Yeah, it, it does sound like in order for Biden to even get his 50 votes, it uh, does sound like he'll probably have to compromise down to like a 24 or 25% if, if he ends up going for that corporate tax push. Do you think if he goes for it, there'll be some kind of compromise or, or where, where's your take on that? I think he's a good president for the times in the sense that he seems to want to be more of the I mean, America could use a boring president for a while. It was it, it was just too exciting with the last administration. <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not. But I'm not being critical. Their policies were right on. And so, you know, I think Biden now is trying to be the older, the old style um, leader, where he where he believes in compromise on both sides. Now, I don't think the country is in that mood anymore. You've got some mm -hmm. very very divisive policies on either side of the aisle. It may be very hard to get that love and feeling back. Um, yeah. and I'm not sure it'll happen. You'll get some indication of it in the midterms, which aren't that far away, but there's a lot of seats up for grab. There's a lot of, um, uh, aggressive tone in both parties. And, you know, in Biden's case, he's got to try and stay a moderate with, even though he's got some very, very aggressive, uh, almost, uh, socialist, uh, pressures coming at him. Mm -hmm. And, um, the same for, for the Republicans who have some extreme right wing views that they've got to somehow consolidate. So I think politics is getting really interesting. Yeah, uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned about uh, airlines and, and hiring people and, and getting back to this max employment. Uh, I got to thinking, what happens when you get even the tech firms who have laid off tens of thousands of individuals during the pandemic, what happens when they go to rehire, but let's say they've laid off 20,000, they go back and just rehire the best 5,000, right? And now, like you mentioned, they don't have to travel anymore, so we need less people traveling. We need less salespeople because one person can do the work on Zoom that five people did before in sales. What happens to all of those other people? And is that is that just really good for the tech companies for the bottom line? Uh, and, and what happens to all those people? Where do they go? It's a great question, but it goes back to the old analogy that's used so often. Everybody thought television would destroy radio and radio is <laughs> bigger than it's ever been. And so what happens is the economy evolves and creates new jobs. And I'll give you an example. Well, I, I do a lot of guest lecturing to graduating cohorts of engineers because generally a third of those classes, I don't care whether you're a mechanical, robotic, chemical, whatever, are going to start companies. And I like to be there for them as an investor. 
And what I find that's so intriguing is I used to say, look, if you're going to get yourself 180,000 in debt in college for a graduate and postgraduate degree, pick a discipline that's going to let you pay it back. And the top three are engineering, engineering, and engineering. And if you have, <laughs> you have any time at night, take some engineering classes. That's what I used to say. I don't say that anymore because in my own portfolio of over 35 companies, I look at my number one growth expense in the last 18 months has been hiring artists, writers, wow. videographers, animators, all of the people that have digitized the websites of all of these different companies. And they're, they used to be dirt cheap. There are no starving artists anymore. They're not starving. They're getting salaries of over a quarter million dollars a year if they're any good because they can tell the story and digitize the service or product online and entice customer acquisition. And so there's a wow. whole new dynamic to the economy that we never could foresee. So I'm not worried about good, good employees will get hired in a growing economy. You just don't want to kill uh, the golden goose. And the way you kill it is you overtax it. Wow. So, so what do you say to people who maybe have lost their jobs? Uh, is, is it a matter of retooling and reskilling? Is it a matter of, of uh, waiting for that unemployment to run out? What, what do you say to folks? It really makes a lot of sense to go back to what you were good at when you were younger. Let's say you're in your 40s, you've lost your job. If you actually were a good writer, a photographer, videographer, editor, yeah. those are skills that are highly valued by this digital economy. And so it's a retraining exercise. There's lots of online courses that show you actually how to use fake Facebook, Instagram, um, you know, LinkedIn, to, so you can become an added value to a company that's trying to use those platforms. And so I always say to people, look, if you, if you don't know how to use social media, train it, train on it so that you can show others how to do it. People will pay you to help them build up traffic on their website. This sounds like such a basic thesis, but it's so <laughs> true today. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on universal basic income? Is that going to be something that we need as sort of this wealth gap continues to widen? I don't think it works. I think we have a form of it right now with stimulus checks flying in from the sky, even to people that are employed. That really never made any sense to me. It would have been better to give those dollars to people that were actually unemployed for longer while they found new work. But, you know, that's a very blunt instrument. Um, that's just another form of taxation. I don't think it works. I think a social net can be, there's different models. You see what uh, the, the Nor Nordics do, or the Swiss. Um, they, they do provide a social net uh, for people that are, you know, poor people in a lower class so they don't suffer. That's very important. But the idea that uh, you have, it's almost worth reading Anne Rand, you know, Atlas Shrugged, where you get this idea of can you get half the economy to pay for the other half in perpetuity? Probably not. Um, and, and that's, you know, there's a lot, I haven't found a country where that's been successful long-term, you know, the Soviet Union collapsed, Cuba, I wouldn't want to live there, Venezuela, no thanks. And th they attempt that kind of thing. It just doesn't work. Wow. Wow. Gotcha. Yeah. So in, uh, on the note of the wealth gap, there's a big, uh, crisis essentially happening in real estate where real estate is becoming increasingly unaffordable. And it seems to be the competition of the haves versus the haves and hots. Uh, I know you have some, uh, you know, pretty, pretty, uh, strong arguments about commercial real estate and transformations there. I, I want to start though with, with residential. What do people do? Do people buy a house today? Do they, or do they just invest in stocks and forget about real estate? Well, real estate falls into two large asset classes, and, and I've been participating in both for a long time. Commercial real estate is nowhere near as safe and buoyant as residential. 
Obviously, if you've got companies saying that 15% of their staff are going to work from home, that favors residential real estate way over commercial. Because if you had a office tower in Boston and all of a sudden, and I'm seeing this happen every day, my lawyers are, are going to be cutting out 33% of their floor space and you know, out of their, out of their corporate headquarters because a lot of their staff don't want to return to the office anymore. And so wow. that puts pressure on the value of AAA office. So let's say it was trading at a 4.2 cap, which is basically 4.2% yield. Yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, by the time this is all over, it'll be trading at a 6% cap, a 6% yield, because there's going to be, it'll be harder to find tenants that want to take long-term leases. Sure. And that's a lot of loss of value. So I've, I've reduced my exposure to commercial real estate from 31% of my portfolio down to eight. And wow. I've increased my holdings in residential because I see for the next two years, uh, continued buoyancy in, in housing pricing, the ability to buy homes and rent them. Um, most people in America want to live and work at home if they could. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's not 24-7 there, but they'd like the ability to stay home a few days a week and work, you know, and maybe go into the office once a week or once a month or once a quarter, whatever it is. That flexibility is what's pushing the value of residential real estate up. I do not see that trend ending. It also gives new geographies. You know, if you don't want to live in San Francisco and you want to live in Seattle, but your main job is in San Francisco, you can do that now. There's ways yeah. to do that. And, you know, maybe you travel quarterly just to HQ or, you know, basically that kind of flexibility. And even in my own organization, um, my holding company, um, most of my staff have indicated they have no interest in going back nine to five to the office anymore. Uh, we've proven over the last year we can work independently and very successfully. And we're making that change. Now, you went from 31% commercial to 8% because you, and you see cap rates going up, so the risk premium's going up. Why not go to zero? Well, unfortunately, real estate has one attribute that has never changed. It's relatively illiquid. Mm -hmm. um, people, it's not like a stock you can buy and sell during the day. Real estate has very large transaction costs associated with it. Sometimes the building may be in construction and has not been stabilized, for example. That's one reason you wouldn't sell it because it's a diminished value. There's all kinds of reasons. It's hard to get to zero because there just isn't enough liquidity. And also different asset classes have to be treated differently. I mean, a hotel uh, in Boston may be more valuable than an office space because there's not a lot of hotel square footage right now there. So I look at it that way. I've got a great team that manages my real estate portfolio. We've determined that you know we're at a point now where there's no, there's no reason to sell the last 8%. We're going to wait 36 months and see what happens. Uh, but that's a, a significant reduction in exposure. And now I have a very, very large cash position to redeploy. Um, we try on, on average, distribute 6% from our operating company a year. So that, I'm really challenged. I can't use fixed income to get 6% without taking an inordinate risk. So right. it, it really favors uh, the work I'm doing in equities and finding uh, companies, private companies, where I can take significant positions in um, and that are cash flow positive. And, and that's you know why I do what I do. Uh, making 6% year in, year out may sound easy, but it's not. Right, right, absolutely. Now, do you believe that uh, there, there's going to be an opportunity to ro rotate back into commercial? Do you want to be a part of that? I've heard you talk about maybe a, a transition of shopping malls into, uh, I think you mentioned this rumor that shopping malls might turn into offices uh, because people don't want to go into elevators anymore. It's not a rumor. That's starting to happen. They have ample parking. Um, you are on a single floor. You can set up offices in 1,200 square foot shops that you know used to be retail. 
Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example of, of my thinking on it. Let's think about uh, one of my big customers for my, for my consumer goods companies, Bed Bath & Beyond. Mm. They closed 200 stores last year, 200. And they were, so the anchor tenant in so many, many B-grade malls across America. They have no interest in using those again because their online direct-to-consumer sales are up 76%. Yeah. So their business remains intact. They curate consumer goods, oils, scents, candles, sheets, towels, you name it. It's a very successful model and brand in that respect, but they don't need those stores. And so what's going to happen to those stores? The most likely outcome would be, let's say they traded at a five cap before um, when they were fully utilized, fully stabilized, and the tenant was Bed Bath & Beyond. Now they're empty. Maybe somebody comes along and says, for $2 million a building, I can turn it into a cloud kitchen for all of the local uh, food delivery services, or I can turn it into a climate-controlled pick-and-pack facility for an online retailer, or I can turn it into residential condos. But it's going to require capital. And so yeah. it, the cap rate probably goes up to 7 7.5%, while plans to, to redeploy capital, switch it out to something profitable again. That's a time when I'd probably get involved. So I might go to the debt side, provide construction financing or modification mm -hmm. financing. I think I could probably get 9 10% for that. Maybe maybe it's less. We'll have to see right. how, how much demand there is. Or I may, um, you know, uh, decide to take an equity position in a company that does that kind of conversion. Who knows? But those are the kind of things my team is looking at now. Makes sense. It, it also sounds like you probably wouldn't want to be uh, spearheading any of those kind of renovations <laughs> dealing with the cities, huh? No, no. I, I think what's going to occur is because a climate-controlled pick-and-pack facility uh, or a storage facility uh, employs very few people and is highly profitable, but it doesn't employ anybody. You can run yeah. a giant facility uh, of, of climate-controlled storage with 12 people instead yes. of 1,200. And so I think the politicians there will not favor that kind of conversion and not yeah. allow building permits. So I think it's a very long, drawn-out, arduous, difficult conversion cycle. Yeah. And frankly, I find many other opportunities more interesting right now than going through all that because I've been involved in that business for decades. Yeah. And so you know, construction financing, permits, local politicians, yada, yada, yada. At some point, you tire from that and you sure. want something that's a little more productive. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, GameStop. This is uh, sounding very similar. What are your What are your thoughts on GameStop? Is Is it going to a thousand or is it going to zero? Well, you know, GameStop went through, as everybody knows, a really interesting um, iteration. It, it its brand, as a result of what occurred over the last five months, is worldwide. The IP of GameStop, the actual brand itself, has way more value today than it had five months ago before it became in every, you know, became part of every headline around the world day after day as, you know, the vigilantes or the Reddit crowd or the Robin Hood crowd, whatever you want to call it, the democratization of, of stock trading. Um, so you recently saw they're going out to raise capital. The analogy is um, Netflix, I guess. Uh, saw the writing on the wall when they were mailing CDs to everybody and said, we're going to digitize this. And they had a brand. Maybe GameStop can do the same thing. Maybe they can provide added services. They've got all these retail locations. Maybe they can have, you know, classes in a setting where people want to spend time with each other in those stores. 1,200 square feet, 1,700 of them. I, I don't know what the outcome will be, but if I was short that stock right now, I'd be worried. And I'm not short. <laughs> okay. And, all right. I, I, think it's, I think it's going to get a second uh, kick at life. 
I think there's some very smart people probably see what I see in the IP being worth something. And this whole social con you know, constituency supporting it, the pricing of the stock is kind of irrelevant at this point. But if you're wow. short, if you're short, you're really hurting. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah. Just because the long run hasn't really been priced in yet because we don't really know. Uh, and, and the upside is, uh, is, is limitless. So um, I, I want to uh, go back for a moment to somebody just starting out. Uh, let's say they've got twenty, thirty thousand dollars. Do they try to buy a one-bedroom house or condo, or do they go all in on index funds or iShares, or uh, you know, do they just yolo it all into Tesla? What's what's your take there? Well, I have a rule that my mother taught me decades ago that served me well in all the volatility I experienced as an investor from my early twenties on. A simple rule, let's talk about the market first. Never let one stock become more than 5% of your portfolio and never let a sector, of which there are 11 sectors in the American economy, like you know, uh, real estate's now a sector, technology, uh, healthcare, they're all sectors. Never let the sector become more than 20% of the portfolio. And that gives you diversification, which is very important to, to be able to uh, survive volatility in a market. When you make a big bet and you let Tesla become 80% of your net worth, uh -huh. And should should it correct? Um, a lot of people learned that the hard way in the dot com era. Um, you know, they had stocks like Pets.com that went to zero, that kind of thing. But if you have diversification, um, you don't have that problem because the likelihood that everything goes to zero is lower, much lower. Regarding um, housing, you have to understand something about housing. You really can't buy a house for twenty five thousand dollars. So what it means is that you're going to take on debt, and so mortgages are most people's largest um, obligation in their lives and their largest asset is their home. There are periods in time when prices of housing correct and you're underwater. In other words, you don't have any equity anymore because you owe more than the house is worth. Yep. And so sometimes the best thing to do is to say, I'm going to be a renter until I can actually afford a mortgage even if the market corrects. Mm -hmm. And that may be a better discipline because the truth about retirement, if you have an average salary in America of 56000 it might be better uh, to simply put aside $100 a week, put it into an ETF, an index ETF. The market has given over a long, over a 100-year period, 100 period, somewhere between 65 and 9% return on average long term. Some years are down, some years are up. There is volatility. But the point is, at the end of the day, that has ended up being the way you retire with over a million and a half dollars. But you have to have the discipline of putting aside $100 a week. And there's so many different apps you can use to do this now. It's not like it's hard to do. What's hard to do is change your behavior because most yeah. people spend everything they make and more and then they end up in debt. But it would really be, um, you got to remember something. When you put $100 into an index fund that's in your name, that money's for you. It's not for anybody else. You're building your own future, which I think is a good way to look at it. Yeah, well, a big thing that we hear a lot about right now is this uh, having an emergency fund, having that six-month emergency fund. Something that I've found is a lot of people, they'll, they'll save up that cash. They'll build up that six-month emergency fund. But before you know it, vacation time comes up and, oh, we'll just borrow from the emergency fund and we'll just repay it because, oh, I mean, whatever. We, like, why not? You know, and, and then what happens is nobody ends up ever investing. Uh, what's, I mean, is 100 bucks a week going to do it? It's the minimum. If you can put a 400 bucks aside, which is actually doable with your average salary of 56,000, it's the minimum. Obviously, you should do more. A simple way to look at it is take 10% of your paycheck and mm. put that away and never hit it. Do not touch it. Okay. Obviously, I understand medical emergencies and everything else, but the truth is 
Mm. When you take money and burn it on a vacation or buy some useless piece of crap you're never going to use, which many people are guilty of, including me, you've sure. actually you've killed off your future. That money's not working for you anymore. So right. do you really need another pair of jeans, another pair of shoes? Just look at your closet of all the crap you don't wear. That's all yep. money you, you wasted. The truth is most people wear, you know, maybe a dozen different things they have, even though they have 30 of something. Um, that's what my mother taught me. She said, buy few things, but buy really good things when you buy them that last. And I, that's the philosophy I have in everything from watches to clothing. Wow. Wow. Uh, now, I want to ask you a specific question on, on real estate there. Uh, one of the ways I started, well, the way I started was uh, I bought a house putting three uh, three and a half percent down as a fixer upper. Uh, my girlfriend at the time, she put uh, half of the down payment in uh, and I put down half. So we each put down about uh, six, $7,000 plus some closing costs and that. Uh, and one of the things that we found that was so beautiful about that was we were now able to buy a $300,000 asset that needed some repairs so I could put my own sweat equity into it. We were able to control a $300,000 asset having a net worth of $9,000 each. Uh, and, and so we were able to do that with a monthly payment of about 2000 bucks a month. And the beauty about that was worst case scenario, if we needed to, we could move and rent it out for that, you know, even putting money aside for repairs and that. Uh, or worst case scenario, we thought, hey, if we can't afford the payment, we'll rent out rooms. Uh, isn't that potentially a way that people can start house hacking or, or renting out rooms or buy a duplex, rent out another room, just to be able to leverage up their wealth maybe quicker uh, than they could otherwise. Yes, it is. And I did the same thing with the exception that I don't think it's a good idea with a random girlfriend. You should enter into a financial relationship called marriage if you're going to do that, because that asset would become very, very valuable, becomes yeah. part of the couple's uh, financial stability. Every time I've heard of people that have, and I've got plenty of examples of this, you fall in love, it's euphoric, you buy a house together, you're not married, then poo poo happens. 50% of unions fall apart for a lot of different reasons, but then you've got this horrific litigation trying to solve for liquid, you know, liquefying the house or, or one side buys the other half from the other. It's a mess. And so I always say to people, look, I did it on my own. Um, I borrowed $10,000 and I was able to buy a house and I rented every room out. I lived in the basement. Um, but I, over time, built a lot of equity up in that. And just as you said, but I didn't do it with my girlfriend at the time because I don't even know where she is anymore. I did it myself. So unless you're getting married, uh, I wouldn't do it that way. <laughs> okay. Well, well, fair correction there. I will say, uh, uh, knock on wood, but Lord and I, uh, we, we are happily married now and have two kids. <laughs> we, maybe we, we were the other 50%, but I- No, that's, that's, a great, that's a great story. But I mean, if, if yeah. others listening, I, I, I really- you know, I wrote a book called Men, Women, and Money exactly about this. And I'm very proud it became a bestseller almost overnight, but it deals with topics like this. Yeah. And, it, and it really talks about the reality of, yeah. you know, where money fits in love. And, it, it, you know, there's a reason that after seven years, 50% of unions uh, fall apart. It has nothing to do with infidelity. Most marriages can survive that, but it has a lot to do with financial pressure. And that's why when I, when I did a lot of research with divorce lawyers and they said, it's always the money, it's always the money. One couple outspends the other and drags everybody into debt. And finally that just takes over. The only reason they're together is fighting about debt. Terrible. Uh, yeah, that is terrible. That's unfortunate. Uh, okay. Interesting. So, so a potential way to start. Yeah. And, and what we are seeing though, uh, with, with home prices going up, I have this, this thesis I want to run by you. Uh, I believe that potentially as home prices continue this sort of 
course that we're on, lack of supply, lack of new construction, coastal cities going uh, incredibly high, especially in the suburbs. If this continues, at some point, investing in real estate for a normal person becomes unaffordable. Uh, is it possible that America turns into a, a, a renter nation where maybe the top 10% own houses and 90% don't and they just rent? Yes, but th this, this thesis has been tested multiple times in the real estate market over the last 100 years. Mm. Uh, prices get excessively high in certain regions. People can't afford them. They move to other jurisdictions. It has right. a natural tendency to resolve itself or the economy has explosive growth and salaries go up to match the cost of rent or purchase or ownership. It, it tends to balance itself. We're in an extreme period right now. We've never provided $1.9 trillion of free money to the economy ever before. And we're about to maybe put another trillion in an infrastructure spending, which is gonna support all kinds of different jurisdictions. This could be the new golden age of America and always you know, when you think about the gold roaring 20s or the early 50s, a real estate was part of what was coveted and still is today by every American family. You want to own that home. With the change now that some people, particularly as we have an older population, are preferring different kinds of housing, condominiums and where I am here in Miami have become very, very popular because yeah. of ease of use. And sure. yet their, their pricing per square foot is much more than a home, which makes no sense at all, because you don't own any real estate, you just own a box of cement. <laughs> and yet, yet that, you know, the pricing here is $4,000, $5,000 a square foot for some very premium condos. And I track the condo index in, in pretty well every geographic region of the US as a way for me to keep an eye on inflation and housing prices. And right now we're really stretching the limits. Yeah, does that mean you believe there's a potential correction in store for real estate? No, it doesn't happen that way. And again, using Miami or Boston as a market, uh, or Austin, Texas is another good market to index. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so much activity of, of moving out of high tax jurisdictions into low tax. So that's why Texas and Florida have had this renaissance occurring. But generally what happens first, and you're starting to see it now is um, the bid ask, and condos are the best way to do it because you can always index each unit. So let's say, uh, there's one I'm looking at here. I, I was just examining the data on it last week. The last time it, it's, an, it's a three bedroom, uh, 2,800 square foot condo. There's probably 30 of them in the building that are identical. And the only difference is what floor they're on. Because if you clear obstructions, you generally get a 25% premium. And so on the twilight floors where you're half instructed, it's a perfect market in that sense. Last time one of these condos traded, it traded for 3,150,000. The owner of one of them now with an obstructed view is trying to get 4.6 million. Now that's not going to trade. That's not going to trade it, and it hasn't traded. And so no. what happens is it sits there and I'm now speaking about the whole index. These condos sit on the market for generally up to 18 months. People that put stuff on the market are willing to wait a year and a half to see if they can, if somebody hits the bid sure. and if it doesn't happen, the prices start to fall. So where we're at now is we're three months into the wait and see. Because the volume of trading is slowing at that high end, which mm -hmm. always tells me potential 20% correction coming, but you just don't know when or what the black swan event is going to be that triggers it. Because if you look at the history of, of Boston, Miami, Austin, you get tremendous volatility, particularly Miami. There's no market more volatile than Miami. And so, you know, if, if, you're, if you're an indexer like I am in, in you yeah. know, buying multiple units potentially, you, you really want to catch it when it starts going down. And we haven't seen that yet. So I got to wait 12, 18 months.
would you be uh, buying individual condos as investments and then renting them out, or, or what oh, do you yeah. do with them if you do? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, for sure. But you you wouldn't do it now because the economics don't work. That's another trigger. Um, you if you if you buy a condo for uh, four point six million, then put four hundred thousand dollars into it, so now it's five million being prepared for rental, and wow. all you can get is eighteen thousand a month, which is pretty well the limit right now. Um, uh, that's a really bad investment. And, yeah. and, and so that, that tells you that the, the, the unit price is overvalued. It has to come down about 30%. When that happens, nobody knows. Right, right. Uh, now, uh, what about uh, residential multifamily buildings? Would you just go buy a, a large building? Or why don't you just go to Austin and buy a 100-unit building? Because the cap rates are below 4%. And so um, yeah. be, ha having been in real estate my whole life, I don't buy when cap rates are sub 4%. Mm. Um, when I first got involved in climate control storage, it was 11% cap rate. Now it's trading at under five. Wow. So, you know, and, and I sold at a seven cap, which meant I left 20% on the table. You can't ever catch the top or bottom, but going into real estate at sub 4% cap rates when, rate, when rates potentially could rise is a very bad outcome and, sure. and, and, a, and a real money loser. So that's why I'm just sitting on my hands. I have capital to deploy in real estate, but I haven't seen anything that attracts me yet. You know, people show me a 3.2 cap uh, multifamily. No, thanks. <laughs> got it. Yeah, I've, I've got this rule uh, rule of thumb that if interest rates go up 1%, prices come down 10%, almost this this 1 to 10 ratio. Uh, and hey, if we get a 2% bump in rates, uh, there, there's your 20% pretty quickly. But then the but then it becomes unaffordable again because the rates are higher. So, so how do yeah, you balance that? Well, then the rental market kicks in. I mean, the, the great thing about real estate, it does have all kinds of pressure valve releases. Uh, yeah. Rental becomes more attractive. Remember, you're, you're, what I tell people, there used to be this philosophy back in the 50s and 60s, and my parents used to tell me, when, we, when they bought a house, it was for life. Yeah. That's not how people think today. When they buy a house today, it's for 36 months, <laughs> maybe five years maximum, you know, whatever. Yeah. They're going to move, they're going to raise a family, whatever it is. Uh, don't fall in love with real estate. The only argument you could make for long term is is waterfront property um, in various regions of the world where it's extremely hard to replace it. And mm. so I, I tend, you know, when I when I purchase uh, waterfront property, I value it based on how many linear feet it, it has on that. And the more, you know, obviously people really covet privacy. But you look in Lake Tahoe or regions of Maine or. Uh, Cape Cod or, you know, Nantucket, those prices have very, very little um, volatility because they're based on access to waterfront. Wow. Uh, and uh, are you worried at all about rising sea levels in, in Florida? I think what you're Miami Beach? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you if you if you buy right now on the Sunset Isles of Venetian Causeway, another index I track, um, what used to cost uh, four million just five years ago is trading for twenty two million. And so, oh. so when, when you try and buy um, hurricane insurance, you can't get it. You have to self-insure. Yeah, So, true. you know, if you, if you really thought uh, the ocean was going to rise 18 inches, well, you'd be writing off $22 million. But most people feel during their lifetime it won't happen, but that doesn't mean it won't. I mean, it's sort of a really interesting dynamic. When it rains hard in Miami, here oh, in yeah. Miami Beach on Collins Avenue, it floods by two feet. Sure. And so, and then you got to wait, eight, you know, sometimes 18 hours to get rid of all the water. It's a really interesting dynamic you're bringing up there. But again, right now, the, the markets are so buoyant, so, so stretched that people are not considering that. But when you do go talk to the insurer, look, I'm going to, 
I'm going to um, buy a $22 million house. They say, good luck. We're not going to insure it. Sure, sure. It just seems like fortunately, though, the hurricanes in, in, in Florida, it's been, gosh, it's got to it's gotta have been at least 30 years since we've had a Cat 5 in Florida, though, huh? It's been a while. No, it, it has. And that's exactly the kind of thing you should say when the Cat 8 comes. You know, <laughs> Stop. That's, that's Wait, what, you believe that? Well, I, I do not take anything for granted on climate change right now. I just, you know, I'm, I'm a very, very big, uh, I have a very big business in the wine industry. Um, you should be aware this morning, uh, it is snowing in Bordeaux and uh, the DRC region and Burgundy. Um, the loss of this crop is going to be catastrophic. That you, and we're getting hail in Geneva. We're getting uh, freezing rain uh, in the Jura in Switzerland, where the white wine is made, and these are this is where I source my 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 juice. And um, we're going to get wiped out this year. That's climate change. Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm talking about snow in yeah. you know late April in Bordeaux. Like you don't see that too often. Now, do you have crop insurance there? No, you can't do that. I mean, it it, it doesn't matter because. What the challenge, they're going to save probably 18 to 20% of the crop. Last night, uh, we were using water to spray onto the berries. There's all kinds of strategies. You're talking about, um, you know, take, take Montrachet in, in, in Burgundy. People think it's a giant region. It's the size of a parking lot. It's worth a billion dollars a row almost. It's oh, my gosh. It's insane. And so it trades at, at crazy prices. LV, LVMH is a corporation buying one row of grapes at a time. So when you have that kind of an investment, you can afford, you'd think, to be able to intervene. But the rules of the DRC, the, the multi-hundred year rules, do not allow you to do that. You, you, you lose your pension if you're caught uh, putting fertilizer up your pant leg and walking the vines or, or, or using some kind of a, a device to put water on it from your pant leg. Those are, those are tricks that have been tried by farmers for hundreds of years. It's forbidden. And so this wow. is the kind of thing you deal with in the wine industry. That tradition is why a bottle of Montrachet is worth a thousand dollars when it's a good year, and it won't be a good year in 2021. Aye, aye, aye. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Golly, yeah. yeah so climate change. I mean, what do you think though about like the Federal Reserve starting to talk about climate change? Uh, Kathy Wood kind of suggested that the Fed seems like maybe they're getting a little distracted and they should be focused on the economy. Is is the Fed right to be concerned about climate change? To the extent there's an economic cost, I mean, I think, you know, if you believe that burning uh, huge amounts of coal is detrimental, and I do, I mean, I just can't think that's a good thing. Um, you should stop buying Bitcoin from the Chinese, for example, because yeah. that's what they do. They, uh, they have 64% of all the coin mined. Uh, I have made a choice not to buy their coin, and frankly, because institutions uh, have these sustainability committees to answer to now, and ethics committees, and uh, they won't buy China coin. So my thesis is to start to invest in companies that make sustainable coin, green coin. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I ran a, I, I, this is interesting because you're, you're indicating it's institutions. So I asked on Twitter, which is mostly going to be retail, uh, 6,486 votes here, 76% uh, of people who replied to my poll uh, when I asked, whether or not they care where their Bitcoin or crypto is mined, 76.5% said they don't care. Uh, and only 10% said, yes, they care and they'd even pay more. Is this going to be something that starts from institutions and then people start caring? Is, is, is that why you're focused on that? I, it, my experience was rather interesting. I, I 
first bought Ethereum and Bitcoin in 2017, but because I work in a highly regulated environment, I have many investments uh, and has some uh, chairman roles in certain financial services companies. Uh, I have to be compliant to institutional standards. And so uh, when I announced that I had, uh, you know, finally, so I, you know, regulators uh, all around the world were very negative in 2017 on any cryptocurrencies. I don't care what country you're in. And then all of a sudden in Switzerland and Germany, France, England, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, uh, the regulator opened up. In fact, uh, there's now ETFs in the Canadian market where you can buy an exchange traded fund that only owns a, a Bitcoin. And so I decided to increase my weighting and went public saying that I've reduced uh, my portfolio allocation for 2021 is 70% equities, 22% um, fixed income, which is a massive reduction from a year previous. It was used wow. to be 50, 50, a 5% gold of which half is stored and the other half I'm balancing with GLD. And then finally a 3% in Bitcoin. Now, I didn't expect to get any kind of feedback from that. It's just a reallocation. I did it in the last weeks of January. You and got a lot of feedback. It, oh, my goodness. I was inundated with institutions calling me from all around the world and sovereign funds saying, wait a second, where are you getting this coin? You're compliant, aren't you? I said, what do you mean? Just like 70% of those polled in your poll. I said, really? Why, why would I care? And they said, are you aware that 64% of this coin is coming from a country that burns coal to make it and has alleged human uh, rights violations and yeah. is under sanction from the United States, that's China. And I, and I realized that I had, the reason these institutions are not participating in allocating Bitcoin has nothing to do with just the regulator, although they do consider it, but regulators are opening up. What they're concerned about is their ethics committees and their, their sustainability committees that sit above the investment committee on a large institutional mandate. So yeah. be before they can allocate any asset class, any asset class, point of origin of, of, of the asset, where its jurisdiction is, how it was created, these are all questions that have to get approved by their committees. And so what I found occurred was I immediately um, said, okay, I'm not gonna buy blood coin from China. Uh, what I'll do is I will go to the mining community, the pools in Europe and the pools in the US, and I will basically fund their expansion. I can. Yeah. Like, you know, if they're looking for $20 million to expand uh, facilities to become more productive, uh, I can help them finance that. And in exchange, I want a royalty paid in virgin coin where I know the provenance. And I found a tremendous amount of institutional interest in that uh, to join me, you know, beside me doing it. It solves their problem too, because they can go to their committee and say, this coin I own in a wallet that has never traded. It's, it's our coin, it's property, it's virgin, it's compliant, it's sustainable. There are no ethics issues with it. And I believe over time, as the institutions start to really get involved in crypto, that you will see a premium. You'll have the discounted blood coin from China and you'll have the premium virgin coin with provenance. No different than blood diamonds, same thing. Sure, sure. Now, is this something uh, that, like as an example, Delta Airlines, they have a partnership, I believe it's Delta, with, with Givo to supply a certain amount of their fuel uh, with biofuels. Uh, I think it's enough for like 100 flights a year. It's a drop in the bucket, right? But I feel like they do it so they can market and, and give the little green badge. Hey, sometimes we use biofuels, right? Uh, is that going to be the same thing? I mean, is, is it just something where like, eh, you put a little bit in your portfolio that's clean and, and the rest is whatever, because whatever, then you can put the little green check mark on. Yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, for years, companies would do that sort of um, to get the 
the aura of sustainability and that they cared and they were green. It was a marketing stunt. Yeah. Uh, but that is not what's occurring uh, today in terms of the consumer. They mm -hmm. smell bullshit a mile away uh, because they have the power of social media to vet out anything. And they do that. And so what I'm finding now in my own investment philosophy, let me give you an example. Um, here's yeah. a company that I'm in a joint venture with Comcast in. Um, this is called Blue Land. Uh, their mission, very simple mission statement, is to eliminate 50 million plastic bottles out of the environment a year globally. Uh -huh. Very simple. I haven't found anybody that doesn't think that's a good idea. And so uh, when I was pitched, they said, we have found a way to crystallize cleaning fluids, a patented way. This is a, this is a full bottle of surface cleaner, toilet cleaner. Okay. Um, they give you a sustainable bottle. They ship it to you direct. You drop this into the bottle with water, and now you've got a full month's supply of surface cleaner and no plastic bottle to throw out. Now, I would have thought that company would have had a hard time uh, growing. It is one of my most successful companies. Why? Because the constituency, the buying constituency, doesn't want marketing bullshit. They want a real solution. And wow. this company has a mission, a real solution, and it works. And so that's become part of the metric of what those consumers are buying. Is it sustainable? That's part of my mandate. That's what I want. I'll support this company. I'll go out of my way to support the company. I'll buy direct from them. And uh, it's, 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 you know, the growth rates on this thing are going through the roof. It'll hit, it'll, it'll hit a hundred million dollars in sales very soon. And so back it, uh, it could be SPAC, but frankly, I'm not a big fan of SPACs. I, I, I feel, I feel it'll be bought by a strategic. That's what'll happen gotcha. when you get to a hundred million in sales, you, 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 you get the big guys knocking on your door. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you get like a Clorox or something to come buy that product from you and, and uh, patent it. Or well, I'm sure it's already patented by your IP. Why um, Why no? not a fan of SPACs? Is it just because of the loose uh, SEC regulation and those uh, those ridiculous investor presentations that are mythical projections that they give? Well, no, actually, I do have about 20 SPACs in my portfolio right oh, now, but, but only from, from operators that I know. You know, a SPAC is no different than private equity. And so I need to know the team that's actually backing the SPAC has actually done deals before and knows how to buy at the right multiple and knows how to operate. And so okay. if you know, you're talking about the Gores brothers or you're talking about uh, Bill Ackman or you're talking about teams like that, I, I buy their SPACs and I own them right up to when they de-SPAC. Then I, then I look at what they bought and say, I look at it now as a public company. In fact, my wine business is in the middle of a SPAC conversion right now. And so, you know, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Now we're going to go public that way through a SPAC. So I'm not against SPACs. I'm against celebrity SPACs. Ah. The, idea, the idea that some celebrity knows what they're doing in private equity, I think, is, is a joke. I mean, you have to spend your career learning how to do that stuff. So, you know, sticking some celebrity on a SPAC and saying, you know, give me $250 million, another $500 million pipe. I avoid those like the plague. I think those are going to go to zero. Wow. Wow. Go to zero. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you mentioned the Gores Brothers. Are you in Matterport? No, the Gore Brothers I got to know uh, way back, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect uh, for their philosophy and how they operate. Um, and some of the people that used to work for me did go and work for Gores and, and said nothing but good things about them. Mm -hmm. I, I like Alec. I really do. You know why? Because he's a cash flow guy. I'm a cash flow guy. He respects cash flow. That's what he <laughs> understands. He understands cash flow. He doesn't understand future cash flow. He understands cash flow now. And then he tries to grow it. He doesn't 
price businesses off, maybe they'll be profitable. Maybe sure. they'll have cash flow. He looks at existing cash flow and the stability of that cash flow, and he makes economic and leverage decisions based on what he knows is factual and has historic data from. That's yeah. the kind of operator I like to invest in or beside. And you know, it's just a philosophy. But you know, his track record is impeccable. That's great. Well, I mean, that's great to hear. Yeah, a lot of us uh, watching right now, we. Uh, we're in uh, one of the Gore SPACs, uh, and it's the Matterport 3D scanning business for real estate. Yeah, 3D scans. Uh, but uh, so uh, you mentioned that uh, you're you're heavier on cash now than than you've been. How heavy is is heavy? Well, it, it's primarily because of the reduction from 31 to 8 percent on commercial real estate, and you know that 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 started last a uh, year ago, January, and then we did do some selling uh, during the pandemic period, March, April, May, at more depressed prices. Um, well, right now the cash is about thirty-eight uh, percent. We just looked at it this morning, which is extremely wow. high. It's yeah. extremely high, and so we we are deploying. Uh, we have uh, done some deals. Uh, they're mostly private, um, you know. Uh, have, and, and I and I also uh, uh, stepped up, and when I did the reallocation down from fifty down to twenty-two percent in fixed income, we did deploy uh, into large cap equities. But you know that's a big dislocation when you take an asset class from 31 down to eight. I mean, it's going to take me a year or two to, to get, put that money back to work. And, wow. and um, you know, yeah, yeah, that's why they call it work. I mean, you know, we look at it and say, we're getting zero for it. When I say cash, I mean cash. I don't put it in mutual funds, you know, or short term bond funds. I mean, cash, cash is cash. So if there's some kind of correction or, or illiquidity event where these uh, mutual funds break a buck, I won't be part of that. So I, my cash makes nothing. Um, there, there is some interesting uh, work I'm doing with my team in crypto where we're garnering for yield using various leverages, uh, USD versus Ethereum versus um, Bitcoin. But this requires a tremendous amount of, of technical skill and uh, uh, it's more of a corporate uh, strategy and it's not something I would recommend to people at home. Uh, mm. But I, you know, I have a full-time team doing this, and you can kind of glean depending on the volatility of Bitcoin, which has been less volatile lately, somewhere between five and seven percent returns. But you are taking risk; it's not free. And so, yeah, you know, I've, I've struggled with this. So I've uh, I I uh, did a video maybe about three weeks ago, and I've talked to a few crypto CEOs, BlockFi, Voyager, and so on. Uh, about the crypto lending space and specifically the lending of stable coins like the Gemini coin or the USDC. My concern is, and I would love your comment on this, obviously. My concern is you've got thousands of retail crypto investors out there who look and go, yay, I've got this stable coin. And they see that as a savings account. Uh, they see that as, as their cash, but they don't realize they've turned on lending. So now they're getting paid six to 8% on the stable coin. And so when push comes to shove and, and something breaks in the crypto space, one day people go back to, okay, well, who uh, gets that original dollar that's sitting in the bank vault somewhere? Well, you're 13 per people down the road because this same dollar has been rehypothecated 13 times. Isn't that a massive risk that there could be a... Uh, a lending disaster that comes out of that? Yes, um, it would be a illiquidity event. If you're going to do this, um, and, and I do some, I, I have employed a material amount of money into this strategy uh, just to you know use cash, but I understand the risks. I, I understand the allocation I'm taking. It is no better than a single C credit. You would never get a, a, a triple B credit on this strategy. 
uh, and yet there's room in a portfolio like mine to have a single C exposure for yields of five to seven percent. But what I would recommend is, and, and I don't have an, an equity interest in them, but there's a company called Circle out there that has some of the, and I've, I talked to all of them. Um, I, I've got a whole team uh, talking to everybody that participates in this on a corporate yeah. level. So if I have a, a, an operating company, uh, which I do with a lot of cash on this balance sheet, I can go to a circle and say, look, I want to open a corporate account and decide that maybe I'll put a 5% allocation into that lending strategy uh, with full transparency, full tax reporting, full compliance, and have my CFO uh, work with them. And that's what we've done. And so it, it's sort of, because it, it, all of these wallets and all of these retail uh, you know, uh, apps and all that stuff, they're just laden with ridiculous fees. And so when you're, you know, you pay a really stupid price to have a, I'm not going to mention names, but anything you download on your phone, you're in the crypto space, you're going to get whacked with a ton of fees you don't see sometimes, or at least sure. you're not aware of. And so my attitude is, if we're going to do corporate lending, uh, let's set up corporate lending. Let's go find providers. Let's find, you know, check out their compliance committees. Let's talk to their management. Um, you know, it's, I'm very fortunate. It's, it's really great to be Mr. Wonderful. Everybody returns my calls and I'm very appreciative of that. <laughs> But, you know, at the same time, I'm doing a lot of work for other LPs that that uh, that may want to pursue this. And if I go set it up and, and it works and I've, you know, I've got some very smart guys working for me on this, I'm willing to deploy some capital, some capital, uh, mm -hmm. because I believe the regulator will continue to examine the potential of cryptocurrencies for for an efficient uh, way to run an economy. And if we don't do it, the Chinese will. And I'd be very, very careful, you know. That, that we stay, as I like to say, au courant with what the Chinese are doing on cryptocurrencies. They would love nothing more than to create a coin controlled by their own blockchain that they could basically provide a stable coin to the world to trade off like the American dollar is, and then turn it off if some, you say something bad about China. They could do that, and I don't want to see them do that. So we're, in, as I said earlier, an economic war with them. If, any, and if anybody's going to get, you know, create a stabilized coin for global commerce, I want it to be the United States and have the same rule of law associated with it and the same court system associated with it. And then, because for me, who does business in Switzerland, in Europe, in, in, in England, in Australia, with all these different currencies, I get killed when I'm transferring into Euro or, 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 or Swiss francs or British pounds. What a total pain in the butt. Why can't I just use a standardized currency and trade in all those countries? Right, right. That completely makes sense. Now, you mentioned that this is single C. I mean, isn't that like you're talking junk level, but these are stable coins. It's not rated. And so it's not even fair to call it single C. It okay. is what it is. It's exactly okay. as you described. There are inherent risks that most people do not understand. And mm. so when you get into, um, you know, it's, it's, it's like that song superstition, you know, <laughs> when you trade in things you don't understand, that's what happens. Bad things happen sometimes. Goodness. Uh, so, so, uh, okay. Now I, I want to go back for a moment to, uh, what, uh, your mother told you about diversification. Uh, some folks, uh, you know, we've got Warren Buffett's view on diversification. We've got, uh, other folks, uh, views on diversification that maybe when somebody starts out, they shouldn't diversify much so they can build wealth and then protect their wealth later. How do you respond to that? You know, diversifying less when you're starting out. No, I understand diversity is important, but so is liquidity. I mean, you got to you have to balance both of those. When you buy an asset that's illiquid, like real estate, yeah. sometimes that is it's diverse in the sense it's a different asset class, but it does not provide for liquidity in times of stress. 
And so, you know, one of the tests I asked everybody to do when they look at their, their, their net worth is how much of this is liquid? How much mm -hmm. of it if a catastrophic outcome occurred to my family, a car accident, a catastrophic illness, whatever, where's the liquidity for me to survive with? If everything I own is uh, an illiquid asset, that's not diversification. And mm -hmm. so you need to have some liquidity in your model. You need to understand where there's risk. You can't value every asset the same way. And liquidity is very, very important and not given enough respect because in times of financial stress, it's the liquidity that provides you the opportunity to redeploy capital. So when I say right. cash, cash, that's pure liquidity. When something corrects and I want to buy it, I'll have the, 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 you know, the, the, the firepower to do it. I'll have that dry powder waiting to redeploy and I'm waiting. Now, so far, there's been no correction, but I've, yeah. lived, I've lived through lots of volatility and I know just when it seems to be safe, poo poo happens. <laughs> Uh, that's a good point. Uh, so, uh, I mean, a lot of people are going to hear that and they're going to think, okay, so what you're saying is all in on stocks because I could just swipe up and they're liquid. Can you speak to that? Well, not every stock. I mean, obviously large cap, uh, I only own 100 of the S&P 500 because I care about the quality of the balance sheet above all. The ability mm -hmm. for the business model to be sustained. I want to participate in the cash flow profits in the form of distributions. You know, you can find companies paying 1.5 to 2% of their profits in the form of dividends and have potential growth of their of their value. Um, and so I, I do that. But they're generally very liquid. But when you get into the micro stocks or you take very speculative positions on in things like junior pharma, um, you, you have to understand that there's volatility there and you need to mitigate that risk. And so this comes from experience. I've always said I'm, I'm a big fan of Robinhood because even though it's got a lot of criticism, it helps yeah. 22 million people learn about stocks. You can't even short a stock on Robinhood. People don't know that. So I, I think Vlad, the CEO there, who I had a chance to meet recently, uh, expressed to me his heartfelt concern that people didn't blow themselves up on his platform. And they've done a lot of work to try and help people uh, protect themselves from themselves. And so I, I'm a big believer in, um, in, in, in learning the ways of the stock market in that way. Even if it's only $200 you're playing with, you can buy fractional shares and start to understand portfolio management. Yeah, I mean, uh, to one positive note there on, on Robinhood, uh, you had talked about any, any of these apps you can download, probably paying big fees for crypto. And I noticed that in the crypto space, huge spreads, uh, large fees, uh, you know, the spot price is way off from what you're able to buy or sell it for. Robinhood has been one of those that even though you can't transfer your coin, I don't even, I don't even think you're actually getting a coin. You're getting like a, a you know, an index. Uh, it, it is the one that seems to be the cheapest out of all of them. It just consistently has the cheapest price every time I run experiments. Are you bullish on the Robinhood IPO? Um, I am. I think it's going to do very well. I think, um, you know, Coinbase is going to do very well. I think there's a lot of interest in crypto, a lot of interest in trading platforms. Um, you know, it's, it, it, again, financial services in the end is valued by um, EBITDA or, or cash flow multiples. Sure. And, right, and right now, because the growth of those platforms looks so fantastic, but when you go and, and look at banks and book values, and uh, in the end, um, you can really hype it up. But in the but unfortunately, over time, if you don't if you don't grow into those expectations of free cash flow, uh, yeah. the market uh, revalue, revalues you. Financial oh, services are generally uh, commodities. Banks are commodities. Um, they don't have anything proprietary from one to another other than brand. And so it does level the playing field eventually. 
how would you value a Coinbase? I mean, obviously their their numbers here in Q1 have been insane. I mean, phenomenal growth and insane cash flow. I mean, you're talking about cash flow. They got cash flow. Does this mean you're plowing into Coinbase? Um, I, I think as a trade, it'll be interesting. But you know, uh, when you start to value cash flow past 17 times, well past the market value, you really got to believe the growth. And so the, the assumption about Coinbase is what else can they sell these people? Right. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of like the SoFi model. What else can they sell? Can they sell insurance? Can they sell uh, mortgages? Can they sell credit rating services? Can they sell whatever? And so you, once you have, once you've captured the customer, how far can you go is right. the whole idea. And um, that's why it's interesting to investors. It's very hard to amass a base of that many wallets, really, really hard. And so, you know, getting just past the first 10,000 is almost impossible, but then past that you can grow into the millions of them because you found a way to acquire customers on an economic basis, which they have. So there is value there, no question. So it sounds like you're probably not all in on Tesla. The way to play Tesla um, is, is to use the thesis of diversification, keeping it at a 5% weighting. I bought Tesla at $238 pre-split uh, when my son became an intern there. He now works there as an electrical engineer. And oh, wow. he, made me, he made me look at the company a different way. Uh, he said, it's, nothing, it's not a car company, it's, it's, a, it's a data company. It gathers data that has tremendous value long-term. And if you view it that way, you should own some. So it convinced me to buy some one day when it was downgraded. Uh, that stock obviously became one of my best performing positions, but every time it would go blow past 5%, I sold it down to 5%. So now my cost base in, in Tesla is zero. Um, and so, and that's how I, that's the discipline I have. I don't let stocks uh, be more than 5% for very long and I continue to sell, sell into the strength, but I keep my position. And so you, you, you lose out on all the upside, but the diversification metric you get is, is very, very good in volatile times. You don't participate in the full drawdown because you yeah. profited from your winners. It's just a philosophy that you learn to appreciate every time a big position takes a big nosedive and you let it grow more than 5%. Yeah. Now, uh, I, don't, I don't recommend what I'm about to say, and it'll be a little embarrassing saying it to you, but uh, I'll say it. And I don't recommend this, so I want to be very clear about this. Uh, uh, of so about half of my net worth is in real estate, about half is in stocks. Uh, so uh, the portfolio, because there's there's debt obviously against the real estate and, and uh, a little bit against stocks as well, which I know you're not a big fan of. Uh, but uh, of my of the half that's in stocks, about uh, forty eight percent is Tesla. Is that really bad? Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> that's really bad. So I get roasted um, by Kevin O'Leary. I had to do it. Yeah, that, that, is a, that is a very bad idea um, yeah. uh, because you saw a, pull, a drawdown of, of 25% or 23% and it's come back a bit. Yeah. You know, your, your cost base is probably very low on Tesla. Um, you know, so I, I would never, ever let that happen in my portfolio, ever. So if, oh. if, anything, hap if anything happens to Tesla, you're going to really be crying the blues. But, you know, well, it doesn't mean, but you, thank goodness we met. You can fix this, Kevin. That's true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a good point. So, okay, well, so uh, what would uh, let me ask you, what would you do with the portfolio? We'll, we'll lay it out there. So, uh, well, you didn't tell me your sectoral weightings. I mean, you know, I could go to town on your portfolio and tell you where you're underinvested, where you're overinvested at the stock and sectoral level. I mean, you know, I, I would I would prefer in a portfolio and have exposure to at least five sectors. 
you know, and right. and at least twenty stocks. I mean, to me, that's I own way more than that. But you know, I've I've got the only sectors I don't have exposure to right now are duration risks like REITs, uh, energy stocks. I don't have any exposure to right now. I do have exposure to banks, but you know, just J.P. Morgan. I have some exposure to financial services. I'm looking for companies that are really in the sweet spot for America 2.0, the consumer stocks, the technology stocks, the healthcare stocks. And so my weighting is a little bit, you know, full weightings into those three sectors. Um, and, and so then 40% of the sectoral weighting to others. But I also have geographic exposure. I'm, I'm up to 20% in Europe now, um, which is a, a first for me because the values are so interesting there. It's a, it's a zip code that people have hated for a long time, but I think there's Europe, a lot of well, low growth, right? Sorry? Uh, low, low growth is oftentimes what people think when they think of Europe, right? Yeah, but all that's going to happen there is there's going to be tremendous stimulus poured in by their government too. And frankly, there's 50 stocks in Europe like like Roche and Nestle that are really, if you think about them, domestic stocks just happen to be headquartered in another place. I mean, those so much American tobacco is sold in, in, in the U.S. So I try and find those companies that are representative of sectors I already own here, and I'm just get, getting them at a, a PE discount in Europe. And I don't mm. mind having some currency. I buy them in the native currency. So I've got some exposure to Swiss franc, to Euro, to British pound. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're going to take exposure to Bitcoin, you might as well own some other currencies too. So we'll just see how all that plays out. But, you know, I think it's early. Um, I think this is going to be a very good year for equities, and I'm uh, very optimistic. So why no REITs? You had mentioned REITs were a no-no for you. Well, uh, REITs tend to have a uh, duration risk. So yeah. um, I wouldn't want to own a REIT that just has a bunch of uh, malls in it right now because they have to go through conversion. There's a lot of optimism that they'll, you know, there's some, not to name names, but I, I owned all those REITs. I've sold all of them, and I'm glad I did when I sold them because they're down significantly from where I sold them. Um, and, and I don't see any reason to get back into them right now. We've got to go through this transitional period over the next 24 months so I can see where in commercial real estate I should redeploy. And I will. I just don't see anything attractive. You know, you got an empty building uh, with no tenant being, you know, people trying to sell it for a four cap. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. That's not a good idea. There's a reason it's empty. You sure. know, it's, and so uh, we've got to wait this out a little bit. And, and that's one of the reasons you're being patient. I mean, oftentimes people's cash burns a hole in their wallet, uh, oftentimes for the negative. They spend it on things they don't need, like you mentioned. Uh, I have this problem where when I get cash, I spend it right away to invest it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have that problem. I've, I've learned that just a long time ago. Cash is just another asset on the balance sheet. It's, yeah. where it's overweighted right now. We, we are yeah. overweight, and that's a problem. It's, it's pushing down returns, pushing down IRR. Sure. Um, but I've learned uh, through conditioning in markets like this to keep some powder dry. There'll be great opportunities coming. I don't know where they're going to be. Um, I'm looking at deals every day, every day. Um, you know, I spend about, I don't know, 90 minutes a day going through the new, we just, our, our deal flow is insane right now. We just have a huge yeah. amount of, but you know, I try and work with others and say, let's categorize these into buckets, something we'd look at, something we won't touch. You know, we look at a lot of different things and we have certain core strengths we're very good at. We have a tremendous due diligence team. Um, we are a sustainable investor, not because it's a marketing scam, because the the people that we invest beside uh, have those mandates. And consumers and a consumer goods and services company, we've already learned through the Blue Lands, um, you know, Prime 6. I'm an investor in, a, this is, a, give, give you a good example. I'll just hold sure. it up. This is uh, the first charcoal company in America that uh, is sustainable. 
It takes uh, the, the waste of hard grain mill or hardwood mills, the sawdust, compresses them into these incredible, uh, incredibly efficient logs that don't have any waste material and consistently burn at the same temperature. Every time they sell one, they plant a tree. That used to be a corny marketing scam. Now yeah. it's the number one in-demand charcoal in America. Every grocer has customers coming in saying, oh, where's my Prime 6? I want to buy Prime 6. I don't want, I don't want to buy this stuff. That, that pollutes. I want Prime Six, so that happens, right? That, and we're a big investor in that. That's incredible. What do you think about? Uh, I know you'd mentioned energy, like utilities. You weren't enthused about. What, what do you think about, like, um, like an end phase, the solar revolution, and and even to some respects, uh, Tesla in, in the energy business. Well, Tesla's different. I mean, it's a it's a data company and a battery company and a technology company. Um, and has also captured the imagination of investors worldwide. So yeah. it's, it's, it's getting an index weighting as an yeah. EV company as well. But a lot of the solar companies have, have yet to prove in uh, profitability without government subsidy. Uh, mm. But I think that's coming. The wind is even worse in some, in some cases. There's municipal restrictions and all kinds of issues. But yet those are sustainability mandates and they will get better and better as time passes in terms of technology. Um, the sector that does look like it's really going to get killed is hydrocarbons because you've got GE declaring they're going to phase out the combustion engine, or sure. GM, I sh GM, I should say. And, um, and, and you've got, you know, this mandate from every uh, federal government level and uh, state that they want to get out of uh, hydrocarbons. So yeah. I would say that the companies will be more efficient at spending less in CapEx but the PEs of all of these once great energy stocks, Schlumberger, uh, you know, Chevron, Exxon, I used to own those. I don't own them anymore because I think their PEs will just keep getting compressed. Yeah. And frankly, uh, when I have, you know, uh, institutional clients say, did I see Schlumberger on your balance sheet? Uh, now I don't have to be embarrassed about it. I, I wow! No, really? No, I mean, that's almost. See, one of the things I didn't like about the S and P five hundred, like straight up S and P five hundred index fund, which is probably where you stand as well, is you get more money allocated to tobacco companies than you get like Starbucks or Target. Is is that kind of like that same feeling you had when folks were saying, "Why are you investing in these oil companies?" Yeah, but I, I believe in the sustainability model. It is now perpetual and remains so. As Larry Fink's letter said a few months ago, you know, he's really pushing on on uh, corporate mandates to fund sustainability and climate change issues. And you mm -hmm. can debate that till the cows come home, but the point is that's yeah. the reality of what is going on. And so I don't want to have to answer to a institutional client anymore uh, that yes, we have Schlumberger on our index. We don't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And there's a reason they don't want to see it there and they won't do business with us. This is yeah. right down to retail investors. They don't want to see it. They don't want to own it. Sure. So I, I am not telling them what to own. I index for them. And so mm -hmm. that, that's sort of uh, the way I look at it. Yeah. Uh, Tesla, you mentioned, almost has an index weighting. As you mentioned, you just mentioned, you quickly mentioned four or five different sectors it's in. Does that mean I can put 5% into each of those and justify my 48%? Well, it's 5% into a stock. I mean, your, your Tesla stock. You know, your stock should be 5% of your weighting, maybe six at best. And then you, you would take the, the money you made there that you diversified and you invest it in other sectors that appeal to you. For yeah. me right now, that's consumer health care and technology, but it doesn't mean it stays that way forever. It's it just that the allocation, I probably own in aggregate close to 900 stocks around the world. Jeez. Um, and, and probably the largest position I might have is 5% in one of them. And so it, it's, um, it, it's really... 
uh, a diverse index uh, of, of ownership across multiple sectors, multiple geographies. And that's my equities. And then I do all these very highly risky investments in these small private companies, but mm. I've had some great outcomes there. Okay. Um, I think I add a lot of value as an investor in terms of, of helping them grow and acquire customers. Uh, and I know I'm worth that. And I, you know, when people approach me, I always have a good time when someone calls me up and says, you know, we're just closing around. Um, uh, we have sales of $2 million. We're closing around at a $25 million pre-valuation. We'd love to be an investor. And I say, look, that's wonderful. I'm very uh, appreciative you've made this offer to me. I understand it's a private syndicate you're forming. I'll make you an offer based on my value to you. And you can accept it or um, you don't have to. But I couldn't care less what your valuation is. Wow. I don't care. Wow. Uh, if you want me to be an investor, it's a very simple rule. I want 12.5% of the company before the employee option pool, which will drop me down to 9.8% if your pool's 21, 22%, which it often is. Uh, I will, uh, in some cases, you will give me that stock and put a long hold period on it, or in other cases, I will buy it or a combination of both. But if I don't have 9.8%, I'm not really interested. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and their answer is, that's outrageous. What do we tell our investors? And I say, I don't care. But if you want, if you want me, if you want me and all the power I have to get your story out there and all, all the customers I can acquire, this is what it takes to engage me. And 50% of the time they tell me to go, you know what? And then they're half, yeah. halfway end up doing deals. And, and I'm, and I'm, I know my value. I'm extremely good at helping companies grow. I have a fantastic team that does the same, but this is the power of social media. I have 5 million followers, which I think the majority of them are investors or want to be investors and uh, follow, uh, you know, my muses about where I go. And that doesn't mean they have to invest the way I do, but they're interested. And I bring these issues to the fore. And in doing so, we create a, a community of people that want to become investors in various companies. And I think that's a great job for me to have. It's a useful, productive use of my social media. But sure. I don't do I don't do it for a two percent holding. I don't care about that. It, it doesn't even get me out of bed in the morning. I couldn't care less. I wouldn't even wouldn't matter. I need skin in the game. Yeah. So for those of you that are sending me all these prospectuses that are not willing to give up nine point eight percent, don't bother. <laughs> Great messaging. So uh, it sounds to me because when you mentioned you're in nine hundred different stocks, that sounds extremely diversified. I mean, it, it, I think studies show that if you have thirty to fifty stocks, you almost have you almost mirror like ninety five percent of the diversity of an index fund. Yeah, nine hundred. That's incredibly diversified. Are you being so conservative, if, if I can say that, on stocks because you're taking larger risks in private equity? It's an interesting point, but no, the reason I own so many stocks and it can vary from a few hundred to, you know, multiple hundred is I study the drawdown. In other words, I look at the history of a stock in a correction. And okay. so if there's, if there is a massive correction, 30, 40% correction, I want that stock to only participate in maybe two thirds of that correction. And I define my ownership based not on upside, but on downside protection. I don't need more money. I need <laughs> to keep what I've got. And I want it to be productive and I want to be able to distribute 6%. So yeah. my attitude is saying I would, I covet much more protection to the downside than I do outperformance. So I'm the reason I'm so diversified is, is those holdings, those individual stocks have tended to have a history of very good performance in drawdowns. That's much different than an investor says, all I care about is beating the indexes. I don't care. 
about beating the indexes at all. Is, is that uh, unique to you, though, that uh, you've already established wealth? Like, why? I mean, it, for the, the 20, 25, 30 year old watching right now, and they're like, look, I got, I'm, they're looking at their portfolio going, dang, I'm 25% in on Tesla. And, and every time it dips, I'm buying more of it. You know, the buy the dip culture. Like, isn't that potentially a great way to build wealth? It is. Um, it's more rock and roll. But what invariably happens to that kind of investment uh, style is you go through a massive correction. Mm -hmm. And you, get, you learn a very important lesson. The generation that is trading right now has never gone through a sustained correction. It hasn't. And, and that's okay because it's coming. I don't know when. I don't know what will trigger it. But they will learn their lesson. And it generally happens in your 30s. Uh, if you have a lot of leverage on, it's a hell of a lesson because you end up in a negative net worth position. Sure. Uh, but you do learn it. And I've, I learned that lesson in my early days. I shorted Yahoo uh, when it was $35 and watched it go to 280 and never, and never covered the short. I had to wait four years for it to get back down to $12. That was a very stupid investment. But it taught me a very important lesson about the power and the risk of shorting stocks. And I'm very, very, very concerned about that now when I do hedge trading. And so I'm, I'm very, you know, I, you learn that lesson. It, it gets ingrained in your DNA. Um, and, and I don't make those mistakes anymore. And, and what I concern myself now with, and it happens to anybody once you turn 40, preservation of wealth becomes part of your investment metric. And the various things you do, like diversification and sectoral diversification we talked about, are part of that. So I don't need to beat the market. I did that already. I need to keep, I, I need to keep what I've got. That's awesome. What do you think about uh, folks who are uh, very enthusiastic about options these days? Robinhood is right there. Very much makes options trading extremely easy. And these derivatives used to be pages that people would never go to in the TD Ameritrade or Scott trade days. Yeah, the thing about options is, um, particularly writing calls, for example, I mean, mm. most people who use options do not understand how they work and how they should be used. I don't want to sound, you know, uh, negative on the use of options, but let me tell you, you know, in a, in a uh, bull market, when you're writing calls, you get called away long before the potential of your stock is realized. And so you're, you're just, you're, you're timing, you're trying to time the market when you use options. Very hard to do. I'm not against it. Okay. But I don't use them anymore. I don't use leverage and I don't use options. It doesn't mean you shouldn't. It's just that I've learned over a long period of time that there's an additional risk in using options, particularly if you're using leverage on options because you're goosing the, 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 the mechanics of it dramatically. And that's where people blow themselves up. So if you're going to use options, it's really worth, uh, you know, the Jerian brothers are very good at teaching you how to use options. I would recommend them to anybody. They're really strong at that. Um, but I don't need to use options anymore. I don't sure. have to. And so, if I'm going to go long a stock, I'm going to go long a stock until it's a 6% weighting. I'm going to trim it down. I don't need an option to do that. I like to, I have an expression about investing. I teach everybody that I, I, I guest lecture with now, keep it simple, stupid. Because <laughs> I mean, when you get into these complex straddles and, and yeah. callers and all of this stuff with leverage, sometimes you wake up with a hangover after going out to a party and you forget the position you have on. And at 945, you just blew yourself up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that's actually what happens. Sure, you got to be careful. Oh yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, another thing that kind of goes along with this portfolio building that I want to touch on uh, or ask you about at least is uh, I have this theory that you go through a phase of life. Uh, you go through your growth phase, and then you go through like the cash flow phase. 
Uh, and uh, sure, you can have both, but uh, people regularly ask me, oh, should I pay down my mortgage? And, and a belief I have is that in, in your growth phase, you don't. It's, it's inexpensive money, 30-year fixed rate debt. You don't go for that 15-year loan. When you're in that payoff phase, that retirement phase, where, or you're getting close to that retirement phase, where you want dividends and cash flow and your income's going to go down because you're going to work less hours, then you go for that 15-year mortgage. Can you speak to that idea? I would agree with you as long as it's a fixed mortgage, not a variable rate mortgage. Hey, yes. Because where, where, that, where that blows up is when rates make a big move and all of a sudden you're readjusted up on your monthly payment by 20, 30 percent. That can't like happen, hasn't happened recently. But you know, if you're not going to be paying down your mortgage, which is often your best investment because it's a certainty when you pay it off versus the volatility and risk of the overall markets, sure. it should be fixed rate so you know you're not. And if you're doing that, then I would agree that you start putting some aside into the indexes where you have volatility. But when you pass 45, you really should try and have your mortgage paid off because okay. you have to be in the gathering mode and the, the debt on your house remains uh, you know, a liability and it will forever until you pay it off. So I, I, my models are generally, you know, I got out of debt um, I, when I was crossed into my 40s and I never looked back and I pay off my credit card amount. There's no scenario where people offer me debt where it makes sense. If I, if I have cash to deploy, why would I take on leverage? Sure. It makes no sure. sense. So yeah. I, I, I just don't. And I, I go to sleep at night. I have risky positions on, but the, the, you know, I don't put it all into one basket. That's the whole point. Are you not leveraging your real estate at all then? Um, I much prefer, I, I, I met a, a really interesting, um, a really interesting guy years ago. You're making me think back when I started buying my first homes, renting them, then renting them out. He used to buy homes the same way I was doing it. And he, 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 he took me outside um, and showed me the house I owned and the one beside it. And he said, your home is a pasta home. This home beside you is a steak home. And I said, what the hell does that mean? He said, your home has a mortgage on it. This home that I own because he was, he owned, he was a landlord that was renting houses beside me, is a steakhouse. It has no debt. Every dollar that comes out of it, I can go buy a steak with. I can cook <laughs> it on the barbecue, but I can't eat steak when I have a mortgage because I don't know what's going to happen until I pay it off. So you're a pasta guy. You can't eat protein yet. And I, it was a brilliant analogy because he basically said, use the steakhouse to pay off the pasta house. Sure. Get rid of the debt. Move down the street, which is what he was, you know, he's an older guy. He owned the whole street. I was just a new kid on the block who just bought one. I overpaid. He was trying to buy the house. I overpaid for it, but it ended up being a great investment. But the sure. point was he was right. So when I, when I stabilize a storage facility, let's say, as I did years ago, I use that cash flow to pay down the debt. Of course. And, and that, and then when you get the big correction where there's totally illiquidity, and all of a sudden, guys that are over levered are blowing up and having to sell their places at discount prices. There you are waiting to pick up the pieces. It's yeah. pasta versus steak. Now you get it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it's it's a great argument. I think of, uh, I, I never did refinances on the original properties that I bought. And, and they're all in Southern California, which you're probably not happy about that. <laughs> but uh, in when the pandemic happened, and the Federal Reserve on a Sunday reduced rates to zero, I immediately called my lender and said, refinance everything. 
So I figured I'd need cash for, for what was to come. Uh, and it ended up probably, I think it, it, it could very well, and it sounds weird to say, but it, it could end up having been one of the best decisions I've ever made or ever will make because I had all of this cash that came to me at the end of March, beginning of April, which is the bottom of the market. And I put it all in yeah, stock. But, but you lived through a period of a unique time when for 30 years rates did nothing except go down. That's probably yeah. not going to happen for the next 30. So you were an opportunist, you did the right thing. But the reduction of leverage is always a long-term strategy that works. And so mm -hmm. you use these opportunities as you did to reduce leverage or at least pay a lower rate when the, on the yeah. leverage you had. But at, at this point in, in my investment philosophy, I don't use it. I don't need to use it. I don't want to use it. And I don't want the covenants associated with it. They reduce, yeah. uh, they reduce liquidity and diversification. I look at all these, these, you know, I do, I don't even sign NDAs anymore. I, I don't sign really? any. No, people are always saying you have to sign this NDA before I show you my deal. I said, I'm not signing anything. If you want to show me your deal, that's great. If you don't want to show Why? me your deal, because ND, like NDAs have all kinds of covenants that restrict your flexibility in other unknown situations. You're signing an agreement that stops you from doing certain things and you don't know you're going to do them yet. So my attitude is if the deal is so hot and so important, it's yours. Keep it. I don't need to know the stuff you want to keep a secret because by the way, you see this pile over here, these other 40 deals. I haven't even had a chance to read these yet, but I'm going to look through these next. So, you know, it's just, it's just the diversity of it. In the end, what I've learned is, and I, you know, I'm I guess unabashed when I say this, it's really good being Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I want to ask you about NFTs. Uh, are you going to get into these or, or is, this a, is this a big bubble waiting to burst? No, it's a derivative of the digital economy. Um, you think about what it promises for uh, the arts. I'm very interested in music and uh, I, I collect art as well, modern art. Um, I think there's merit. Uh, the, the, because it's a new asset class, it's going to be immensely volatile. Some of these have 90% volatility. But I think the idea that you have something that's copyrighted in perpetuity that can't be forged is really interesting and a good idea. Wow. And so I, I think at the end of the day, they will find their place. I'm dabbling. Um, I'm in a negotiation now on a particular uh, piece. I don't know if I'll close it or not. It's just, it's like my watch collection. My wife said to me, why do you keep buying those watches. You, if you wore three watches a day, you yeah. couldn't get through your collection anymore. And I say, well, as an asset class has performed, she said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> what, what do you need another watch for? And it's, they have performed. They're up over 100% in the last two years. Wow. I, I enjoy the art of watchmaking. I want to support the people that give up their lives in the age of 14 to become a master watchmaker in Italy or Switzerland wow. or Germany or even England now. And, and so those people mean a lot to me and I want to support them and I buy their watches. I mean, I have a watch I'm wearing right now, an FP Journe. Uh, you probably have seen this on Putin's wrist. This company only makes 900 watches a year, maybe 17 of these. It's appreciated over 100% since I bought it 18 months ago. Wow. Maybe Putin did that to it. I don't know. But it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a piece of art. And what, what about the uh, the art on my Apple Watch, like the pictures of my children on it? Well, I've often said about Apple Watches, that's great. Uh, you'll probably have to burn in hell because you wear that. You're not supporting real watchmaking. That thing is a, you, you know, Kev, that tells you right now you're 20% off retail if you walk around with an Apple Watch on. Like the, to, that thing is not, that, that is a piece of consumer electronic junk. And I, and I own Apple stock, but I would never be seen dead with an Apple Watch on. Not a chance in hell. So you're probably not happy that, not today, but usually I wear two of them, one for my texts and one for my Twitter notifications. Yeah, that's that's just, that's garbage. 
That's what that is. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Uh, wow. So uh, very interesting insights. Uh, okay. So I think the the I mean, we've hit a lot of different things here. I think the the last question then then I have for you has to do with uh, uh, Florida, California, this exodus, and then and then maybe one more on port uh, one last one to wrap up on portfolio. Uh, you live in Florida. Did you go to Florida because of the zero percent state income tax? Uh, for my operating business, yes, but I also moved here for lifestyle. Um, Florida and Texas are the two big options. Uh, uh, California, New York, Massachusetts, those states have priced themselves out of growing businesses anymore. They're going to have to somehow figure it out, uh, but I'm not waiting around for them to do that. I would never start a business in any of those states. And in fact, when I buy businesses, I move them out of those states. I uh, moved, wow. recently moved one out of California, Northern California uh, to Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, coders are much cheaper here. Taxes are much better. You're talking about a 17% difference. I really like the competition between states because you've got, you know, pretty soon California will be a vacation a location, but you wouldn't want to start a business there. I would never invest in that state. And I won't invest in New York or Massachusetts either until they get their poop together. Meanwhile, down here in Florida, we're just rocking. We've got the cultural vibe. It's fantastic, spectacular art scene, fantastic investment environment, great mayor for the city. I mean, everything's working here. It's an example of what America can be. And an example in Texas, the same way of what we, every state should be if you want to be globally competitive. But you know, all that rhetoric coming out of New York, imagine pushing away Amazon with thousands and thousands of jobs. And they simply said, okay, if you don't want us, we'll just move to Carolina and we'll, we'll employ 25,000 people down here. I mean, not to name names, but some politicians just don't get it. They just are so far from reality that they drive their states right into a ditch. So mm. I'm not going to fight with them. I'm going to visit. I'm going to visit, but I'm not going to live there. Like, that's no, the whole point. The 17% competitiveness for your business, are you talking about your employees being able to take home more money and therefore they're more- In every life? way, Florida's better than a high tax jurisdiction. In every way, access, internet, employment, colleges, research, um, lifestyle, weather, who the hell wants to be near the Northeast in February? I mean, I, I, I wouldn't like, there's a reason birds fly South. Where do they go to Florida? They like the taxes and the weather. That's the whole point. <laughs> well, well, what do you say about, uh, the SoCal weather? I mean, you got Mediterranean climate over there. You got that. Love, love SoCal, love SoCal, love, uh, to go work out there. I and mean, we make shark tank on the Sony lot. Love it. Uh, would never, uh, take a residence there or um, invest a business. Those guys are clueless. Okay. I, there'll be a, there'll be a, there'll be a change. So, well, I, I could I could rent something, but I'd rather just stay in a hotel because I'm there for you know a few weeks. I got to make sure I'm not there too long. The next, you could, if you stay there too long, you get taxed at a ridiculous tax rate. That's even, in my view, is un-American. That's what wow. way I look at it. And lots of other people are figuring that out, saying, "Why? What do they have that I need so much that I can't get in Texas or Florida?" We're at that stage now, particularly when they're contemplating raising corporate taxes. Why would you ever start a business there? Ever. What you want to do is sell your product and service there, but don't have the nexus of your corporation there. It's not good for business. So how do I convince my wife, Lauren, to finally leave California? She doesn't want to leave California for, you mentioned it earlier, family and weather. Well, simply look at your tax bill each year. I think yours she is going care. up. She doesn't care. Well, I get it. Um, I would rather have that money to start businesses with, create jobs Me in America too. than- and then give it to the federal government. You know, you should really, uh, you should send her to my uh, official boot camp for um, re-education. Okay, how do I do that? <laughs> <laughs> it's expensive. I get a huge royalty. It's fantastic.
gosh. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, wow. Uh, incredible. Yeah, I've got to get going. I've got to be in the studio in 11 minutes. I got to go. Yeah. Yeah. True. Okay. Uh, last question then. Uh, so if you had, uh, real estate here, so I've got, uh, like I said, 50% of my portfolio is in California real estate, Southern California real estate. Uh, would you just 1031 exchange this stuff to avoid taxation or, or, uh, would you put it all into a big multifamily building in Austin or what would you do? I diversify. I get some other geographies. I'd sell a couple of properties and then redeploy it somewhere else just to get diversification. 1031. And then what do you, uh, uh, for, for Tesla stock, you pay some big taxes. If you got that low basis, especially in California, I'm paying like 56% out here or something insane. It's, it's yeah, another reason to leave another reason to leave California, but I, I never let taxes make investment decisions for me. I, I, I keep on the diversification tax is something you pay. You're going to have to pay it whenever you sell it. So you might as well stay diversified. Anyways, yeah. I've really had a good time today, yeah. Kev. This was Pleasure. really enjoyable. Kevin, shout out your channel. How do people follow you? Kevin O'Leary TV on every platform, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Please join me. Love to see you on Instagram where I have a lot of fun. It was a pleasure. Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Everybody for watching, thank you so much. Consider sharing the video. And uh, folks, we'll see you in the next one. Thanks Take so much. Take care, bye-bye.